you know, there's lots of room on the carpet for anyone who may want to move forward. Somehow the chairs ended up farther back tonight, but feel free if you'd like. So I know I may be about a week late for Thanksgiving, but I was feeling particularly thankful tonight um, just for this group and uh, opportunity to sit together, the opportunity to to share what I love so much, what I feel so much um, passion and confidence about. And I was particularly thankful uh, that you allow me every week to flail away uh, to because I really never know what I'm going to say. I always have a few stray thoughts, but it comes spilling out, and you put up with it. It's amazing. You're very, very obedient, and I don't mean that in a in a sheepish way, in a sheep-like way, but more in a appreciation for your open-heartedness. And and uh, the truth is, over the years of of jumping off the cliff every week, entering into the 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 mind, the life of don't know, uh, that really we're always entering into. We really don't know what will happen this evening. We really don't know what will... There's certain things that are fairly predictable, like our aging, our dying, but the time and how is completely uncertain, and so many... Everything is really uncertain. We live constantly in a state of don't know. And that can be kind of scary on one hand. On the other hand, it can be if we practice getting used to it. Fortunately, I get the practice of getting used to it in this specific form of of jumping off the the cliff every week into the world of a Dharma uh, discussion or talk. I found that over time in doing that, I've developed a certain amount of faith and confidence that it will happen. Life will happen. It will happen to all of us. And we we really don't have to be afraid. And it really doesn't help to be afraid. It's It will happen. I will either, uh, as I found every week, I will either um, have, I'll either do great or I'll bomb. I'll be, and whether I, in my own mind, I do great or bomb, you will either uh, feel praise or blame toward me. I will feel praise or blame toward myself. Uh, I will um, I will feel some pleasure or I may feel pain. I may feel as though I lost something. I may feel as I gained something. I will go through the worldly winds and all of us will go through the worldly winds every day of our lives. They will blow one way or the other and we deal with it. And through dealing with it, we develop a kind of uh, equanimity, a certain serenity, just able to, with a little less reactivity, a little less uh, anxiety and fear, go with the flow. Uh, So I appreciate and thank you for for this opportunity for, for my practice to develop some equanimity. Some of you may know this, that when I started to lead classes and retreats, it's now 20, just completing my 26th year. When I started, I was, see, I had no idea I was going to talk about this tonight, so here we go again. 
I was, when I first started doing this, I was absolutely terrified. I had never visioned, dreamed, or imagined that I would sit in front of people and talk about uh, the Dharma. After I practiced for a long time, I had a, a, what I thought was a long time, <laughs> I had uh, little whiffs of the possibility that I might be useful in some way, but it never crossed my mind growing up, never dreamed I'd end up in this, in role, this role or anything, and I had no experience whatsoever sitting in front of people talking. So I was terrified. The models that I had were my teachers, uh, Joseph Goldstein, who was my root teacher, the real, my real, what I'll call Dharma inspiration. My teaching teacher was Jack Cornfield, who led the, I was part of the first teacher training group that, um, that he did back in the, in the um, mid-80s. And these two were such gifted orators, speakers, they were spellbinding. And unfortunately, any comparison that I made <laughs> between the way that they showed up in their role and the way that I felt internally, there, the, the distance was so great that that my mind created an identity of, of inadequacy, of, of terror and fear. And, uh, and although I, because all of us tend to measure ourselves by, uh, as I think I was speaking about a few weeks ago, we tend to, even though we measure others by their warmth and their kindness and their goodness, we tend to measure ourselves by our competence and then constantly are making a case against ourselves when we can't measure up to the ideals that we manufacture in our minds. Well, measuring myself according to my competence, especially uh, relative to my teachers, I was a complete mess. And I would literally pummel myself at the end of, of, of a short discourse and my stomach literally would tie in knots and it wouldn't let go for three, three or four days. I finally let myself off the hook. Any of you ever had that kind of experience? Just merciless. And yet, after not that much time, I, um, I stopped being afraid stopped beating myself up. I still have those occasional grumpy feelings after and I often have a, still have a perception that, that whatever I'm saying is, it sounds very strange to me but other people tell me it's okay. But for the most part, all the, we'll call it, I'll use the Yiddish word, all the mishigas about it, all the extra narrative and stuff, it's gone. Basically, it's, it's, I hardly feel a ripple anymore. And, and I say that not out of pride, but I say that out of the inevitable letting go that can happen when we practice something, when we put ourselves on the edge of our practice, when we're willing to face moment to moment, whatever presents itself in our mind, in our body, whatever challenges are in front of us, that we turn toward it instead of away from it. That we are uniquely built 
to have our difficulties turn into strength, turn into wisdom, turn into compassion, mostly. I, my heart breaks now uh, for the, the, the body of fear that most of us carry around, where I didn't understand it. I didn't understand it. I rejected it. I didn't. But living with it and working with it, it, become, it has become a source of, um, of benefit, not, not a difficulty at this point. So, I think all of this came up because I wanted to, uh, I'm still thinking about our, the idea of a 100-day retreat, but I don't want to focus so much on the nuts and bolts of a 100-day re- retreat tonight, although I would still love to have everyone uh, join beginning on January 1st in your own way in some kind of commitment to using that hundred, first 100 days in a very continuous, uh, heartful way to, to uh, wake up what needs to be awakened, to open up what needs to be opened, to practice what needs to be practiced, to, to take great care with what you do with your body, with your speech, and your mind during those 100 days from the moment you wake up in the morning till the time that you go to bed and see what happens. That's the only way to actually put the teachings to practice. It's the only way to see whether they really work. You may, begin, you may get a sense that they work when we engage in practice in a uh, more informal way, in a casual way, in a, um, in a less intensive way. You may have experienced that. And you may, ju- even if you just came on Tuesday nights, it was the only time you sat every week, for example, you would feel over, you're, you would likely feel over a period of time some trickle-down effect into your daily life. But the amount of hours that we have every day and the amount of potential that we have to shape our, to train our minds, to shape our lives, to gladden our hearts, to open them, to, to clarify our understanding and to experience a kind of joy that we just normally don't even think as possible in our life, the potential of that with the amount of hours that we have every day uh, is enormous. And it begins by it begins by reflecting on what it is that you um, what it is that you aim for, what it is that you want. As the Dalai Lama always says, and we we know generally, I want to be happy. Isn't it true? He says everybody wants to be happy and to be free of suffering, and that's what. What connects us, that's a universal truth. All beings, not all sentient beings, not just human beings, but all beings want to find relief, happiness, be fed, be loved, feel connection. All beings want to be happy and be free, free of suffering. But the Buddha didn't stop with recognizing this, as the Dalai Lama didn't stop at recognizing this. He suggested at least in the Buddha's turning of the wheel of the Dharma, he said, in the first basic teaching, he says, life's tough. 
And if you really open to how tough life is, then you, you make possible some kind of... Uh, you, you, you get a little bit of fuel. You get a little flame. It becomes the cause of you um, feeling more, perhaps, rather than less, more of a sense of urgency about... Um, about the preciousness of this life, the preciousness of our time here, the uncertainty about where we, when will it will end, the uniqueness of our our human birth, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it will give you a fuel to want to be, um, want to do something with your life and wake up in some way. The funny thing is that when we're built, our, at least we're conditioned. That when things, times are really tough, we tend to stop practicing. When times are tough, we stop practicing. When times are easy, we go off on retreats. Uh, when ideally you want to use the whatever dis-ease to inspire you to practice. So sometimes we have to be encouraged to turn toward what's difficult. So the Buddha in his first teaching says, life's difficult, welcome it, open to it. The cause of it, the cause of the continued difficulty is not wanting to look at it, is moving away, pushing away what's unpleasant, grabbing on the pleasant. And he said then that there is, if you open to it, if you release this tendency of mind, moment by moment, this tendency of mind to reject and to hold on, reject the unpleasant, to, to, um, to grab onto the pleasant, if you let go of this tight fist of holding on, there is space, there is freedom, there is the potential of a great sense of well-being great sense of ease. Almost everyone here I know at some point when you were really struggling, whatever it was that created the conditions, when your mind either surrendered, relaxed, it let go, there is often this incredible wave of relief. Well, the, the Buddha suggested that we can practice. We don't have to wait for this wave of relief that this wave of relief is fulfilled, is actualized by every moment that we open to life as it's presenting itself. That every moment where we are not living in contention with reality, in resistance to reality, in in resistance to how it is, we are literally planting the seed of that relief that we feel after something has after there's been a cessation of something we're literally practicing cessation practicing letting go this is why you've heard so many times here and everywhere the teachings of ajahn chah where he he says do everything with a mind that lets go If you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll have complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world will have come to an end. Or Ajahn Sumedhu, in his very pithy teaching, just says, 
let go, let go, let go. He says, I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to figure things out or make things out, I'd say, let go until the desire would fade out. And in his case, he says, I'm, I'm telling you this because I'm trying to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. He says, because if you, if you hold on, you're, you're going to be busy trying to become this great meditator and being invite, invited to great international Buddhist conferences. And he says, I'm trying to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. He says, there's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. Just let go, let go, let go. And he goes on to say that in his teaching on letting go, he says that ours, he talks about the Theravada tradition of Buddhism, he says ours is the lesser vehicle, the Hinayana. So we have only these simple poverty-stricken practices. We just say let go, let go. We don't say become the, the Buddha of the age, Maitreya, spreading love throughout the world. Just let go. Be like an earthworm who knows only two words, let go. So the Buddha talked about letting go, about the cessation, the end of suffering, fulfilled by any moment free of greed, hatred, and delusion. And any moment free of hatred and delusion is synonymous with a moment of mindfulness. They don't coexist, greed, hatred, and delusion, and mindful attention. And he finally said there's a path. There is a path that one can follow, a path that one can create, one's own unique expression of this life, of this life of truth, this life of unfolding, that has uh, eight different elements to it, three main elements. Eight, the, the three main elements is cultivation. It's all about cultivation. Cultivating the uh, habit of wise speech, speaking to yourself, speaking to others, wise livelihood, uh, acting every day in ways that, uh, that are non-harming, not doing the kind of livelihood where you know that whatever livelihood you're engaged in is the source of intoxication, is the source of uh, deals in weapons or deals in... Uh, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a challenging kind of inquiry because it seems that I think what all of us do sometimes uh, unknowingly uh, can cause suffering. But in general, to practice a livelihood that is for others' benefit and is non-harming, and to uh, be wise in, uh, in the use, uh, in how we live our lives, uh, just not killing, being respectful of property, not stealing, uh, not clouding our perception continuously with intoxicants, drugs, alcohol, uh, just the basic training precepts of, of, of purifying our actions so that we don't make a mess of our lives and don't make a mess of other people's lives. So that this is the element of the so-called Noble Eightfold Path that deals with establishing a foundation of ethics, morality, and non-harming. And then the second part of the path that the Buddha recommended was to train our mind to train our hearts every day, to do it in a continuous way. That means to develop, uh, to develop wise uh, effort, 
which means effort, continual effort that is not too tight, not driven by greed or, or grasping, not too, um, not too loose that you're just, that you're, that you're actually falling into constant spacing out and delusion, not too tight, not too loose, energetic, upright, courageous, persistent, um, continuous, that you develop wise effort in your life, whatever you're doing, and you work with your effort, and that you develop, you develop wise um, concentration, that you learn to connect with whatever you're doing and learn to sustain that connection. And whenever I talk a bit about this, I think that this quality of samadhi or concentration is, we tend to relegate it to the, uh, to the cushion as something that we can do on retreat. My contention is that we can do this literally, if the intention is there, we can literally be training the seeds of concentration every single moment, and I think it will save our lives if we do it with each other. If we connect with each other and sustain that connection, we will start to feel more intimate. We will not be like ships passing in the night, avoiding each other, and then wondering why we can't get along. We will we'll start to feel our heart stir. As one, anyone does, you will feel your heart stir when your mind and body come together and your attention comes together with something in the immediate present, whether it's a person or whether it's the object of meditation, whether it's a sound that you're listening to, if you really connect with that and you sustain that connection, you, your heart will stir. You'll feel a sense of gladness. You'll feel a sense of something inherently right about where you are instead of that continual drama that plays in our mind continually telling us that we're not right where we, where we should be. And our mind, because of that, tends to be so busy looking elsewhere. That's why that passage that I shared with you at the beginning of the sitting tonight, where Ramakrishna says, O longing mind, dwell within the depths of your own pure nature. Do not seek your home elsewhere. Do not confine your innate infinity into the mansions of of name and form, all these ideas. Your awareness, your naked awareness alone, O mind, awareness right here is the inexhaustible abundance for which you long so desperately. Don't look for anything but this. Remember the poem from Ryokan, the great Japanese monk poet, where he says, Buddha is your mind, and the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. If you point your cart north when you want to go south, how will you ever arrive? That's the... I won't try to unpack that right now. But this capacity to connect and sustain with each other, with the tasks that we have at hand, whatever we have to do, to use this qual- this power of our mind that every single person has i don't care whether you're you're uh, you have high intelligence low intelligence whether you're successful or not whatever measurement that you've been uh, inaccurately defining yourself by you all have these magic qualities called, at least in the Pali language, they're, they're called vitaka and vichara. 
Vitaka is the capacity to gather your attention to a single point, to a single spot, to a single person, to whatever task at hand, to a project, whatever it is. That's vitaka, this quality of gathering, of bringing our attention together. And then vichara is the, is the capacity to sink into, to sustain, to stay with in a very non-superficial way what it is, that's, what it is you're doing. So that very, this is the opposite of just glancing at things, seeing things from a distance. It means coming face-to-face. It's understood in the teachings that if you apply this, you can literally apply it every day. When you go home, if you go home to family members tonight, do it with them. Or even, maybe right now, look at the person. (laughs) This is a little, this could be a little bit, uh, let's do it. (laughs) Turn to the person sitting next to you. And I don't mean have meaningful eye contact. Don't get into the, the, uh, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, It starts with an S. It's, um, anyway, forget it. But look into the, just look at the person that's sitting next to you just for one moment. You don't have to talk. Just look for a moment. And if you can, just look. And, of course, ideally you want to suspend any views that you have about yourself or that person. Just look. Just see. Just take them in. Notice what happens. See, I get to look at you all night. See, I... I know that it's because I, I really want to connect and sustain that connection with you. I, I get the benefit of falling in love every week in some, some way. It stirs my heart. And, and I know that that's, a, that's something that, um, that we all have the capacity to do. And then tonight when you brush your teeth, connect with that. And then sustain that connection through the duration. Even when you're flushing the toilet tonight, connect and sustain. And as, you're, as you move your body to the, to the bed and shift into the lying body, the awareness of the lying body, connect with that and sustain that connection with full awareness. As you close your eyes, be aware of closing your eyes. Connect with that. You may, you may, not saying this will happen, but you may be able to recall tomorrow morning whether or not you fell asleep on an in-breath or an out-breath. We talk about that on retreats. Sounds a little funny in daily life, but but you get the drift. So this is right concentration, connect, sustain. The last thing I'll say about that is that this, when I talk about falling in love, it's really describing three qualities that tend to come along with the with the habit of connecting and sustaining. Three qualities 
seem to emerge as a result of connecting and sustaining. And those three qualities, traditionally, they're called piti, sukha, and ekagata or ekagata. Piti is, is the sense of rapture or intense interest. Somehow we're, ga- we're, we're captivated by what we really connect with and sustain. And we feel it as a, sometimes as an energetic shift, as a, as a, a wave of, of, gla- of, of rapture. And often there's a feeling of sukha. Sukha is the word for comfort or happiness. And it has a kind of internal feeling of, of having just been massaged from the inside. And we also have this sense that we don't have, once this, once the fruit of this connecting and sustaining is experienced, we feel the sense of just being in this one point and not needing to be anywhere else, not even wanting to be anywhere else. Isn't that nice? Not wanting to be somewhere else. That's actually rare. I'm getting this memory of of being a, I think I was about 25, and I was visiting my cousin who lived in, in Central America, in the country of Costa Rica, and I went to visit him. And I'd lived 25 years already. 25 years is not, that's still young, but, but 25 years... And I was sitting on a hammock one day in this little coffee shack overlooking this coffee plantation that my cousin was trying to bring back to life. Really funky place, but really beautiful. And I was swinging on this little hammock and I looked out the window and I got this flash this realization, it was the first time in my life I didn't want to be somewhere else or I wasn't planning my next move. That sounds kind of absurd, but we can literally live a whole life obsessed with what's next and miss that uh, one-pointedness, that ekagata, just here. And the, the power of that our mind when it's not moving. So that's concentration. And then there's right mindfulness, which is all, which I've been implying all along. Knowing what it is that's happening. Mindful. Full of attention to what's happening at at one of the doors of perception. What's happening in your... What are you seeing? What are you hearing? What are you smelling? What are you tasting? What are you feeling? What are you thinking about? To be mindful of that, to be current, to be in real time aware of what's happening. And this may seem like an obvious and natural thing to be able to do, and it is a natural thing to be able to do, but when the one of the oldest... Um, monks alive at the time. He's no longer alive. Uh, the famous monk in Thailand, Ajahn Buddhadasa, was asked at the end of his life to comment on the, the world, what he would have to say about the world and describing the world. He sized it up in three words. 
What do you think those three words were? The whole, he described the world in three words. Lost in thought. Interesting, huh? I thought it was anyway. It was, it's our chronic habit. So to be mindful doesn't mean we stop thinking, but we start being mindful of thinking. Doesn't mean we become blank. Means we are awake, alive. We let that we let ourselves register, we let the light of attention register what's happening. And mindfulness doesn't mean to comment about it. It doesn't mean to to judge or to criticize. It means to notice if we're if there's judgment or criticism. But mindfulness itself simply knows an object, knows what's happening. It's just there. We're just here. And it tends to take the stickiness out of whatever it is that we're noticing. When I can just notice, oh, this is happening. I'm feeling sad, and I'm mindful of sad. Oh, sadness. And I'm feeling sad. Oh, sadness is like this. And I really let myself be mindful of sad. Sadness is just sadness. I let sad be sad. But if there's sadness and there's a little glimpse of sadness and maybe there was a little mindfulness of sadness but then usually I'm sad and I'm thinking about why I'm sad and how I'm going to become unsad and how I've always been sad and how everybody I know is sad and the whole world is sad my heart's breaking for the world oh that's lost in thought that's not sadness and then there's mindfulness oh I'm mindful of lost in thought Now I'm back again. What's happening now? So what's happening for you right now? What can you be mindful of other than hearing? You may be mindful of the state of your body, the state of your mind. You may be aware of whether your mind is balanced or whether it's unbalanced, whether your energy is high, whether it's low, whether you're happy, whether you're unhappy, whether the experience you're having right now is pleasant or unpleasant. You could be mindful of a lot of different things. It's not just hearing the words that I'm saying. It could be any number of things on many different levels. But if there's mindfulness, there's freedom. You're not getting caught up, not lost. So this is something that can be practiced. This is the central part of the Eightfold Path, the mental development or training. It's a reminder that we are, if you believe or have some confidence or intuition about what the Buddha said, that we are really trainable. We can increase that sense of concentration, that connection, and all the qualities that go with it. We can increase that continuity of mindfulness, which means the continuity of non-suffering. It's really hard to suffer and be mindful in the same instant. We really underestimate its power and its value in our lives. That's why it's... It's sweeping the country, but I'm not sure the way that it's being offered in all the various circles that it's being offered. Understand, I think there is an understanding in psychology and many different universes and business, the power of being present and mindful, but the potential as a yogi to train that power of mindfulness is... um, And I think what the Buddha had in mind was not just to make our life a little easier, 
It was to to unlock latent qualities that are um, that are quite marvelous and beneficial for for all beings to unlock our hearts to be able for each of us to feel really free in this life in the midst of it all in this very life to feel really really happy to feel a sense of the joy of equanimity the joy of concentration the joy of freedom and wisdom to really experience joy in our lives to feel, to feel that we have confidence to uh, ride the waves of, of this very difficult process of sickness, old age, and death. It's not fun for anybody. But to be able to ride that with, with a kind of joy. My friend was, he loves the image of the laughing Buddha. And I'll tease him sometimes. I say, well, why is the Buddha laughing? Because you don't see too many images of the laughing Buddha. That's more of a kind of Chinese uh, abundance god that's been taken, to, that's been uh, been uh, has co-opted the Buddha. And the, but the Buddha often will have this little teeny smile. But what's the Buddha smiling about? The Buddha is smiling because he he knows that there's a way out. There's a way to be free. And then I'll say to my friend, well, doesn't he have compassion? And I forgot what he said, but something to the effect, well, yeah, he's, he, feels, he feels so much compassion that, he, that, that that compassion, I forgot, oh, no, I, I shouldn't even try to represent what he said. But even that, the compassion that he feels is that, is uh, um, there's a continual reminder that that compassion can turn into uh, into joy and turn into wisdom, and so he's happy, and you can be too. In fact, it is a compassionate act to be happy. The world needs it. I actually think I brought along the poem tonight. It seems like it has a good. This is a good spot for it. It's called A Brief for the Defense from Jack Gilbert. Sorrow everywhere. Slaughter everywhere. If babies are not starving someplace, they're starving somewhere else. With flies in their nostrils. With flies in their nostrils. But we enjoy our lives because that's what life wants. Otherwise, the morning before summer dawn would not be made so fine. The Bengal tiger would not be fashioned so miraculously well. The poor women at the fountain are laughing together between the suffering they have known and the awfulness of their future, smiling and laughing while somebody in the village is very sick. There is laughter every day in the terrible streets of Calcutta, and the women laugh in the cages of Bombay. If we deny our happiness, resist our satisfaction, we lessen the importance of their deprivation. We must risk delight. We can do without pleasure, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of the world. To make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil. If the locomotive of life runs us down, we should give thanks that the end had magnitude. We must admit that there will be music despite everything. 
We stand at the prow again of a small ship anchored late at night in the tiny port looking over the sleeping island. The waterfront is three shuttered cafes and one naked light burning to hear the faint sound of oars in the silence as a rowboat comes slowly out, then goes back in, is truly worth all the years of sorrow that are to come. We must risk delight. A brief for the defense. How did I get on that one? See, this is what happens when you're stream of consciousness. Oh, the Eightfold Path. <laughs> last but not least, the last part of what the Buddha talked about was the potential of cultivating wise thought and then, uh, and then de- develop wisdom. Wise thought means train ourselves in thoughts of what he called non-greed, non-hatred, non-ignorance, thoughts of goodwill, thoughts of compassion, that every day we can set our sails, we can set our intention to, uh, toward goodwill, toward kindness, toward caring, that we can, not just our words, not just our thoughts, but our actions, that in the teachings that we can train every day Rather than to think, uh, I wish this person would have less than I do, or that I had more, we wish instead that their happiness continue, that it increase, that it never wanes. When someone is suffering, instead of saying, poor them, we wish them well, we connect with their, with their suffering. When we're suffering, instead, when we're struggling, instead of making a case against ourselves, we envelop ourselves in kindness and we regard ourselves as, as um, kindly as we would um, our, the, the person, the extern, the person other than ourselves that we most deeply care about. But often we don't do that for ourselves. We often don't regard ourselves kindly. So we can cultivate this. We can train our thoughts to be uh, wholesome, kind, generous, patient, to, uh, to guard our mind from the, and protect our mind from the tendency toward complaining, toward ill will, toward judgment, toward all those things that are often fueled by... Uh, by, by hatred, by ignorance, and instead we replace them. We we fill our minds with 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 goodwill. So I don't know. I I know many of you have been coming here a long time, but I think tonight you, as often I like to, um, I like to share my one of my favorite practices. I, that I've done now since the after the first three-month practice period that I did back in the 70s. I came out of that practice period and then I went back to uh, where I was living. At the time, I was living in Tucson, Arizona. And not long after that, I moved to the San Francisco Bay Area that I found to be a little bit, after being in a smaller city, I found it to be a little bit cold. And I'd been practicing loving-kindness every day repeating phrases in my mind and I decided to do a practice that has stayed with me now for all these years uh, really almost 30 years I call it stealth metta 
and under my breath when I walk down the street, when I drive my car, when I various things, when I can remember, I will say, may you be happy, may you be happy, may you be happy, may you be happy, I love you, I love you, I love you. I, I do it whatever way I can, whatever comes forward. And it had such an impact on me when I st- first did it. I had such a shift in my perception of isolation. I felt so much more closely joined with the people that I was sharing the street with, sharing the J Church line here on, uh, on, you know, the J Church on Church Street and goes down Market. That's that was the scene of some of my best stealth meta. But it has continued because I was so touched by the power of turning our attention toward kindness, and then for the 20 years or so that I led the group on Dolores Street, I often would eat what used to be called, at what used to be called the Real Good Karma, the oldest vegetarian restaurant in San Francisco that then became the uh, the Dolores Street Cafe, which I did eat at a lot. But from that point when I would, after my meal, when I would walk up the hill to where the sitting group used to be held, I would do loving-kindness. And during that period of loving-kindness, something that I would easily forget in my daily life, I would do it toward myself. And it was remarkable the way that it would... that a little attention to myself, to this mind, this body that had just carried me through the day that by that time may have been all wound up and tight and tired... A little loving kindness, transformative, and I did that for many years. And so, it's something that you can take with you. This is wise thought. It's having thoughts that are inclining toward goodwill. We don't have much time tonight. Hopefully, there's been a little bit of of um, of wise understanding that has come from uh, the words tonight because it culminates and really begins with wise understanding. Wise understanding that we don't exist alone apart from each other, that we are very intimately affecting each other and being affected by each other. And that that, that deep understanding of our interdependence, of, our, of the, um, the non-separateness, the, the selflessness of everything about us, the contingent, uh, the, the truth of contingency, how everything is affecting everything. That if that really touches our heart, that understanding, that it, will, that it naturally guides us to a path of non-harming. It guides us to a path of connecting and appreciating. It guides us to a path of goodwill. It guides us to a path of mindfulness, of concentration. It guides us to a path of wise livelihood and wise effort. That the understanding of the emptiness of self and the, which simply means the fullness of everything becomes the cause of the uh, a real unleashing of our of our love, and it's out of love that we practice. It's out of care. It's out of compassion that we that we practice. So when the Buddha finished his wow, sorry, when the Buddha finished his uh, talk, he found his 
cohort, he spoke to his cohorts, some of his ascetic friends who he delivered this first discourse where he included the Eightfold Path. He then formed the, the Sangha and encouraged everyone, and this has been encouraged for the last 2,500 years, to instead of taking refuge in the, uh, the stream of greed, hatred, and ignorance in the, uh, at least in this season, as Mike Malloy, the lefty talk show host says, instead of taking refuge in the consumer elf called Santa Claus, and he calls him the consumer elf. <laughs> this is just symbolic for the, the way that Christmas and the meaning of Christmas has gotten co-opted by the consumer machine. But instead of where we often habitually go for refuge in shopping and in, in distraction, go to the Buddha for refuge. Go to the, the Buddha within. Buddha means awake. Go to that capacity of wakefulness. Go to the Dharma. Go to things as they are, to the truth. The Dharma also being, go to the teachings that remind us that we are trainable, that we, that we really can make a better world for ourselves and for each other. Go to the, uh, go to the Sangha. Go to the support of, of people and situations that, that reflect and remind you of what your values are. Gain the, the support uh, of anything that keeps you in touch with the Buddha within and with the Dharma, with a commitment to truth and a commitment to a way of non-harming. So every day take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. You can reflect on the historical Buddha and the historical teachings and the historical Sangha of awakened beings that have, that have generously passed on teachings for 2,500 years, but it's much more immediate than that. The Buddha is you. You are the Buddha. And the only reason you don't know that is because you're busy thinking that you're not. And when you stop thinking for a moment, you'll see that the Buddha, uh, you're naturally awake. You're not anything that can be defined except awake. And what you're awake to is that everything. And, or how it is right now. It's the Dharma. Take refuge in that. Not how you hope it will be, how you want it to be, how it could be, should be, would be, but how it is right now. And take refuge in the Sangha. We're lucky we're together as a Sangha tonight. Community. Enjoy. So, sorry to keep you so long. So as we often do, always do, we consider that if there's been any benefit to us being together, that we share it with everyone in our lives, our near and dear ones, each other, all beings everywhere, without exception. And keep widening our circle of, of caring to include even the, the perpetrators and the people we have a hard time with in this life. And let the blessings of our life uh, be punctuated by a deep wish that all beings can be happy. All beings can be free of suffering. All beings can recognize a sense of freedom and equanimity and serenity. And that our lives be continually dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all beings including ourselves. May all beings be free.
don't jump up yet, I have a brief announcement. We have a very, 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 very special guest coming next week. Unfortunately, I will not be here to enjoy with you. I'll be leading a retreat. But we have the great pleasure of having with us uh, Sister Ananda Bodhi, a, um, a nun, a Buddhist nun, who is trying to establish a monastic um, life here in San Francisco, trying to establish monasticism for women in the West, who's a wonderful character. I have not spent so much time with her, but the one, the, the one time that I was with her uh, much more closely in one of our meetings at Spirit Rock, I took complete delight in her presence and also took delight in her willingness to come and uh, share with you the uh, trials, the tribulations, what it's like to be a monastic in this consumer society. It's quite a remarkable thing to wear the robes, to, to express one's commitment to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha in that, in that renunciate way, in that very beautiful example of simplicity and sufficiency. And I'd just love you, for you to hear uh, what it's like for her. So tell all your friends to come and, and experience Sister Ananda Bodhi. And as well, uh, go visit her little vihara on the... I, I don't know exactly where it is. Where, what's the location? 48th and Kirkham. I think we sometimes have some, some literature here. Wait, see her next week, then go visit her a lot. I'd love to see her community thrive here in San Francisco. And last but not least, just a reminder, when she comes, to be generous. to Because she doesn't actually take whatever you offer her. But when you offer Donna to her, you're offering it to the community. You're actually offering... To, to make it possible for, for the Dharma to spread and to continue and for people like her to be able to uh, continue to be an example of, of um, purity and renunciation. So please be generous. And as always, uh, feel free to be generous uh, with me tonight, with the, with the teaching teacher Donna, anybody who takes this seat, so that when you offer, you make it possible for me to go on to the next group, etc., etc., and it's also the very central practice that the Buddha suggested as part of our purification of our actions to practice generosity. So much appreciated if you do offer some dana. And also, please, uh, please practice generosity in supporting the $150 per uh, week of our room rental. So really, I'll give you the, the big punch on the, on the room rental dana. And thank you for your presence especially, and thanks for your dana. See you in a couple of weeks. And remember, Sister Ananda, Ananda Bodhi, correct? Also, we need some help cleaning up, putting the room back to its original state. And also some help for coming a little early next week. Always helpful putting up the chairs in the right... The chairs are here, but we just shift them around, getting the cushions out, etc., etc. Love you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.